0: questions you always had the answers you were never given the place to seek the truth
1: welcome to veritas Antarctica is a land about to be exposed over its well-guarded secrets and ancient hidden mysteries in 1955 as a result of a secret agreement reached between the Eisenhower administration and a German breakaway group in Antarctica a transnational corporate space program began to emerge. The secret infusion of personnel and resources from U.S. military contractors into Antarctica allowed this transnational corporate program to steadily grow into a major space power, which would eventually surpass and eclipse the secret space programs run by the U.S. Navy, Air Force, and the classified space programs of other nations. Whistleblower claims substantiate that many of the classified programs conducted there violate the 1961 Antarctic Treaty and constitute crimes against humanity due to the abuse of a captive slave labor force. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion or have feedback, just click on the contact button. Our website at VeritasRadio.com. I always love to hear from you. Today's special guest is Dr. Michael Sala. In his new book titled Antarctica's Hidden History Corporate Foundations of Secret Space Programs, he daringly exposes the major corporations involved in these illegal programs and how the truth is hidden from company shareholders and the public. Today, Antarctica's secrets are slowly being revealed the increasing volcanic activity that is melting the massive ice shelves, exposing ancient artifacts and crashed extraterrestrial spacecraft. Full disclosure of Antarctica's history and current events involving multiple space programs and transnational corporations will vitally aid in transforming our planet and prepare humanity for the major geological events that lie ahead as the melting ice unveils all that has previously been hidden. His website is exopolitics.org, and directly from Pune, Hawaii, I would like to welcome my friend and special guest, Dr. Michael Sala, back to Veritas. Hello, Michael, and welcome back. How are you?
0: Aloha, Mel. It's uh, good to be back. It's been a long time. I think about a year.
1: No, it's been, I believe, uh, two years now. So, I'm glad that you're back, because I've been thinking about Antarctica lately, and recently, you said I just wrote a book about Antarctica, and well... Here you are. So first of all, what prompted you to write a book about Antarctica and what is really happening there? I want to know.
0: Well, Antarctica is an area that uh, I've been interested in uh, since I got involved in exopolitics politics uh, back in 2001. Um, As you probably are well aware, there have always been rumors of uh, Germany having set up a base in Antarctica, Operation High Jump was something that people have always puzzled over. But, uh, I it was always elusive in terms of getting really firsthand uh, testimony about what's really going on in Antarctica. Uh, but that really began to change, um, just a couple of years ago. First, there was this uh, flight engineer. Uh, a Navy flight engineer who did an interview with Linda Moulton Howe where he talked about what he had seen in Antarctica. And, and that was very interesting uh, because that was firsthand uh, witness testimony from someone who had been there. Um, but the one, the thing that really convinced me that this was a, a project that needed to be written up in book form was uh, when Corey Good described having been down to Antarctica not once, but twice. Uh, having been taken down there as part of this kind of inner Earth civilization that are feeding him information and that he's been on board their craft that have twice gone down to Antarctica to basically conduct surveillance missions of the secret bases that were set up down there. And of the ancient artifacts that have been recently discovered there, and and, and Corey's uh, information uh, has been pretty consistent with what the scientific community has been recently releasing in terms of giant caverns in Antarctica, thermally heated that that is conducive to life, and so I think that when you look at the whole package in terms of, you know, what eyewitnesses have been saying about Antarctica, what the uh, scientific community has recently been putting out about events and discoveries in Antarctica with some of the historic documents concerning Germans and Operation Paperclip, you know, when it all came together, I thought it was a pretty compelling book.
1: Well, let me ask you this, and I hope it's not offensive to you or to Mr. Good, but if Corey Good's information is accurate... Isn't he violating a military oath? And how do we know that what he's saying is not disinformation?
0: Well, um, I've been working with him now since uh, March of uh, 2015. And, uh, and, and in that time, I've really found nothing that makes me doubt his story. I mean, I have worked with other people for, for, over a period of years, and sometimes things do happen that makes me doubt their story. Um, but, uh, in, as far as Corey Good is concerned, there, there's nothing there that, uh, really, uh, makes me question it. And in fact, um, I'm privy to some personal information where, um, let's just say I traveled recently to, to Europe and I met with some people that were providing, um, kind of personal services to, to Corey, uh, protection services, shall we say. And these were high level people in the intelligence community and, and they clearly believed what he was saying was, was true. And, and, and these are very senior people in the um, intelligence community in NATO. Um, Similarly, I've met people or or actually communicated with people from the Defense Intelligence Agency who uh, have also communicated about Corey, and and they believe he's he's genuine. And and in my own personal research, um, I've I've found what he says to be uh, very uh, consistent with some of the public uh, documents that are released or public. Events that 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 seem to happen synchronistically with his revelations. So yes, yeah, so, so at the end of the day, I found nothing I right with his testimony, but I found a lot of uh, corroborating um, support from high-level people within the intelligence community, as as well as a lot of uh, synchronicities with uh, things that people would describe as kind of circumstantial evidence, such as you know him talking about. Uh, secret, uh, slave bases on Mars. And then, uh, the interplanetary, um, the British Interplanetary Society organizes a conference, uh, dealing with, uh, slave bases on Mars. You know, how do you remove a, a Mars dictator? That, that actually was yes. <laughs> a topic in, in a, in a British Interplanetary Society meeting in London where they had approximately 35 uh, people uh, from the scientific community, the uh, uh, kind of aerospace community, meeting to discuss that that very topic. So you know, all of these things, when you add them up, to my mind, make Corey Good a, a credible eyewitness.
1: No, that's fair enough. But what about the military oath? Isn't there some kind of a non-disclosure agreement? Between the military and its personnel, not to share this information, and this is why I'm 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 questioning it because this is just incredible. If this is true, folks, this is just life-shattering, history-shattering. But how is he able to say all of this? Is it because the government thinks nobody's going to believe him? This sounds like science fiction. Let him speak.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, in his case, he says that when he was 17 years old, uh, that he was made to sign a bunch of non-disclosure agreements. Um, as, as part of his recruitment into this secret space program. Uh, but, you know, at that time, he was legally a minor. So now he feels that he feels that he's not obliged, uh, to honor those, uh, honor that non disclosure agreement. And in any case, uh, he has been prompted, uh, by, senior figures in this secret space program that he served in to disclose. So he actually has been given kind of like the go-ahead. So in that sense, he's not so much a whistleblower as an insider.
1: Interesting. So those agreements were signed before he was an adult, so they're invalid, basically.
0: Exactly, yes, uh, because uh, by law, you need to be at least uh, 18 years old to be able to sign into some sort of contractual binding uh, or contractual agreement with the uh, U.S. government or any um, government agencies, and so uh, he was a minor. His parents didn't sign off, So uh, so therefore he doesn't regard those non-disclosure agreements as, as binding, and, uh, and in any case, he's been given the thumbs up to disclose this material anyway.
1: We'll go back to Corey Good's story later, but let's go in chronological order, more or less, just to give a, a better perspective. We've discussed this before, but it's important to refresh our minds. Let's begin with the Thule Society. What is this Thule Society, and is it still active?
0: Uh, well, the Thule Society was a secret society established in uh, in Germany in the uh, 1900s. And after the uh, collapse of Germany during the First World War, the Thule Society was very prominent in, in helping uh, rebuild uh, Germany um, in terms of getting a new political leadership on board. Uh, the Thule Society itself uh, believed that they – uh, we were in touch with or had information about an ancient underground civilization uh, that was connected with ancient Hyperborean civilization in northern Europe, uh, whose capital was Ultima Thule. And so that's where you get the Thule Society name from. Um, and so the Thule Society, they sponsored uh, some some very interesting projects. One of their more esoteric projects was uh, this uh, psychic by the name of Maria Osic who uh, was claiming to be in communication with a group of extraterrestrials who had all of this advanced technology that they wanted to basically hand over or transmit to humanity. And so she d- took all this information down in automatic writing and she then, uh, with the help of the Thule Society was able to get some, uh, scholars, some German scholars who could recognize this uh, automatic writing because it was written in a language that she didn't understand. And they identified it as a Sumerian. And what they realized was that, uh, this, this, um, channeled information was actually the instructions for building a spacecraft. Uh, or more correctly, a space-time travel device. And so then with the help of some prominent Thule Society members, she got some support from uh, key people, scientists, to build this device. Which by the early 1930s, uh, was functional. So the, the rural society that she formed that was dedicated to building these, uh, s- these kind of space time devices that, uh, they had succeeded in, in developing some early prototypes by the early 1930s. Uh, but then, um, in 1933, uh, Hitler came to power and he basically subsumed all of this research, all of the projects that, uh, Orsic was involved in, that the Thule Society had sponsored, um, into the program of the, uh, the Third Reich, um, trying to militarize this so that uh, they could win the war or, or basically use it for, uh, war preparations.
1: I've seen photographs of Germans going to certain places around the world in what seemed to be Indiana Jones-like expeditions. You probably have seen those pictures too. And I believe the organization was the Ananerb. Well, we're having a hard time pronouncing it. Why did they choose these locations? I believe Tibet was one. How did they choose these locations? How do you think? Do you think the advanced technology they created was due to the ancient artifacts or information that they found?
0: Uh, well, that's a that's an important part of all of this, uh, Mel, because uh, the SS Anunabe, uh they were the kind of scientific and educational. Uh, branch of the Nazi SS, and their job was to basically go out there and find any ancient records or manuscripts or technologies even that uh, cast some light on uh, on the Aryan ancestry. Uh, because as I mentioned earlier, the, the Thule Society believed that uh, uh, Aryans uh, were descendants or were connected in some way to these ancient Hyperboreans. And so this was something that the uh, SS Anonebi were uh, actively studying. And, and one of the things that uh, they understood about advanced technologies was that uh, there was a very strong consciousness component to it all. So they understood from the very beginning, and this goes back to um, uh, Maria Osich and her kind of esoteric uh, communications, that in order to understand these ancient technologies dating back tens of thousands of years from ancient civilizations that have long been forgotten or gone underground, that it wasn't just um, a matter of kind of like Newtonian sciences, studying, understanding physical laws and understanding how technology works, but you also needed to understand consciousness. You also needed to develop consciousness because consciousness was, was kind of like the tool, was kind of like... Uh, The mechanism by which these technologies could work. So, you know, if I was to use a metaphor like, like a horse and carriage, um, like um, the carriage might be compared to modern technology and the horses would be like consciousness. And depending on how you utilize your consciousness, you know, you could take that technology anywhere. And so the Germans believed that through understanding the kind of interface between human consciousness and advanced technologies, you could build um, a society that was able to utilize Technologies that the rest of the world didn't understand at all, and so this was what um, this is what the Anunnaki society was doing, uh, and that was kind of like predicated on the earlier efforts of uh, Osage and the Thule Society, and the Brill Society. So that by the time uh, the Germans uh, began developing uh, flying saucer technologies uh, for the war effort, um, they they certainly understood that uh, consciousness was an a key ingredient to all of this and uh, they were making some powerful inroads but it still took them some time uh, which is why uh, they decided that you know just before the second world war began they decided that they would um, start separating the uh, spacecraft research that was happening in germany itself with uh, another project that would be begun in antarctica
1: and we'll be dissecting. This is just fascinating. I'm thinking of Pinamunda, the island that it was the, the the Soviets, the ones that actually captured that island after the war. So who knows what they found there? But Michael, when I think of a military base, I think of large infrastructure, perhaps underground. This requires a lot of raw material, equipment, and especially manpower. And at the risk of sounding insensitive, folks, and and you know these days you have to watch what you say so you don't offend people, did they use slave labor in Antarctica to build those bases since we know they used slave labor during World War II? And if so, who were the slaves and were corporations, say, Siemens involved?
0: Yes, well, unfortunately, this is one of the aspects of what's been happening in Antarctica, which which is pretty disturbing. Now, I mean, it's a matter of historical record um, that there were major German uh, corporations that used slave labor uh, during the Second World War, um, and that this was part of uh, their requirements to meet uh, the Nazi war goals, uh, the war objectives, and in terms of being able to produce uh, the necessary amount of tanks and aircraft and other kind of weapon systems, uh, because a lot of the able-bodied German men were being sent off uh, to the uh, various war fronts, and because uh, women, according to Nazi ideology, were not supposed to work in factories but were supposed to stay at home and raise children, like what was happening in the United States and Britain and other allied powers, um, the Germans decided that they would basically use slave labour. And uh, interestingly, there's a book uh, by the German German armaments minister, Albert Speer, who wrote a number of books, but one in particular really uh Outlined what the Nazi SS had in mind in terms of a post war economy, which would continue to use slave labor. So the Germans really wanted to establish the Third Reich on this principle of slave labor. So it's not surprising that with the outposts that were established in Antarctica that slave labor was involved. Uh, this was one of the things that was just a continuation of the existing German policies um, that major companies, um, IG Farben, uh, Dornier, um, Siemens, um, AEG, um, all of these companies to varying degrees uh, did use slave labor uh, during the Second World War and that these German companies uh, established subsidiaries either in South America or in Antarctica that would build the key components for the uh, German spacecraft that are being secretly built in Antarctica. Because as, as I'm sure you appreciate, Mel, um, that in terms of, uh, um, establishing or building uh, new weapons technologies or aerospace platforms, um, it wasn't just a matter of, of having a, a kind of military force there to use these to supply the pilots and fly them and provide the kind of military infrastructure. You also needed to have corporations who had the know-how for building these things. Um, and and so um, just as in the United States today, um, the U.S. military, uh, the various services contract out to various aerospace companies to build um, their kind of aircraft, jet fighters, jet bombers, and so forth. Um, similarly, in uh, Nazi Germany and in Antarctica, uh, the, the German secret societies, the Nazi SS that were all involved in this, they relied on German companies. So that's why, in terms of understanding what's going on in Antarctica, today, we really need to look at what German companies were involved in building the various flying saucer craft that the Germans had built during the Second World War. Uh, In particular, we're talking about the Vril series of craft. We're talking about the Hannibal series of craft, that these were all built in uh, both Germany and Antarctica. And uh, all of them uh, were involved in various corporations, German corporations. And after the war, uh, then there was uh, this collaboration between German corporations and American corporations to build a kind of joint uh, uh, transnational corporate space program.
1: I'm going to get into the mind of Adolf Hitler for a moment here. Bear with me. But I'm thinking, if I'm the leader of a nation that's at war, in my opinion, if we're going to be having all these resources in Antarctica, which everybody thinks is a a, a, a sheet of ice isolated from the world, but at the same time, if we have the technology to build the base there and build the weaponry and advanced technology, the reason for me to have these two locations is in case we lose the war in Germany and in Europe then we still have this here. Now, the question is, what is Antarctica? Is it a breakaway civilization? So that, in fact, and after I'm reading your book, I had a few Eureka moments, I'm thinking, did they actually win the war after all?
0: Well, that is going to be a a really big question that everyone is going to I have to deal with, um, did, did the Germans win the war, um, as, as opposed to what conventional history tells us? Um, but, but certainly Hitler, uh, did fund the development of this secret space program in Antarctica. Now, in the book itself, what I describe or what I distinguish uh, is, uh, between the control of the German secret societies that were the ones that helped establish the program uh, in the beginning, and the Nazi SS that were wanting to weaponize these technologies. Um, and, and certainly uh, Hitler's Third Reich uh, funded the programs in Antarctica, but they didn't have total control of the programs in Antarctica. The programs in Antarctica were more under the control of these members of the secret societies that had actually helped put Hitler to power, bring him into power to begin with, because the Thule Society, not only the Thule Society, kind of sponsor Maria Orsic and her, um, her, early efforts to build these real spacecraft or real space time devices. But the Thule Society actually were the ones that helped Hitler come to power. They were the ones that sponsored the, the National German Workers' Party that became the Nazi Party. And and the most senior level officials in the Nazi Party, many of them were Thule Society members. So, so really you know many of us assume that hitler was an absolute dictator in germany but i think it, it's more accurate to say that you know, he uh, was more a, a puppet figure uh, someone that was um used by the german secret societies to manipulate the, the German masses into supporting national socialism because one of the things that the German industrialists greatly feared was the possibility of a, of a communist revolution in Germany. So they realized that Hitler, because of his charisma and his appeal to German workers, that he could he could rally German workers to support the, 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 the Third Reich or this national uh, socialist party and therefore kind of neutralize the impact of the communist movement that was very popular in Germany in the interwar years. Um, But Hitler was never the one that was in total control. So uh, when it came to Antarctica, as the end of the September World War approached and Hitler's strategic bungling uh, was exposed, uh, where he basically, um, all of his decisions that led to the uh, collapse of Germany during the war effort, uh, they were things that, Uh, basically meant that he was not going to play a leadership position with the Antarctic breakaway civilization. So he was more or less put off to pasture in South America and in particular in Argentina where he was basically sent into retirement. Um, and, I, and I guess he played a, a kind of honorary position um, in in terms of a figurehead leadership position for the uh, Nazi SS that were um, bringing a lot of people down to Argentina uh, to form enclaves down there and in Chile and also in, in Brazil. But really the, the power for... Uh, The power behind the Antarctic space program, that German breakaway group down there, that was more run by these uh, German industrialists and and secret societies.
1: And before anyone laughs at me for even suggesting that Germany may have won the war, here's why I say that. Let's talk about Admiral Byrd for a moment, and you'll know why I'm saying this. Admiral Byrd, Richard Byrd, established two Antarctic bases 1,500 miles apart. His first expedition was from 1928 1928. In 1930, the second, 1934, third one, 1939 and 40, and, you know, the first expedition was backed by the U.S. government, the first one to be backed by the U.S. government, the third one was the first backed by the U.S. government, rather, Uh, that was Operation High Jump. Just a few months between 1946 and 47. And his last visit was for Operation Deep Freeze between 56 57. Would you agree, Michael, that his most important expedition was Operation High Jump? And it was supposed to be six to eight months, but it only lasted for just a few weeks. No one really knows what happened that the entire fleet had to return just a few weeks later. Some say colloquially. That Bird's fleet got their butts kicked and they found a force they couldn't fight. Could it be that these Nazis, this secret society, was able to develop enough advanced weaponry and technology that that's why birds fleet had to return? And then we'll continue with my speculations. What's your take on that?
0: Well, I I think definitely uh, Operation High Jump was the most important of all of the Antarctic missions that uh, Bird undertook. I mean, just by sheer number of uh, uh, people involved, there were 4,700 sailors and marines. Um, It was a multinational task force. Um, You had the British and the Australians that were also supplying uh, uh, ships and personnel, Um, and uh, they basically went down there to conduct ostensibly a scientific... Mission that was what the public was told, but you know th- this was a scientific mission without any scientists. So I mean clearly uh, there was <laughs> something much deeper involved here, um, and, and we know that there were um, a, a number of uh, casualties from uh, the Operation High Jump expedition. Um, uh, Admiral Byrd on his way back to Washington D.C. after High Jump's uh, kind of premature end in March of 1947, he. Started stopped off in uh, Santiago, Chile where he uh, gave a a press conference and one of the reporters, uh, Lee Van Adder, uh, asked him well you know what what happened down there in antarctica and and bird mentioned that you know they suffered uh, significant casualties and there was a new enemy uh that could fly from either pole uh that could overrun the united states and was a threat now obviously as far as the north pole is concerned well we could always we could understand that the soviet union uh could have uh, feasibly attack the united states uh, over the north pole but you know but bird mentioned both poles so who is present in the south pole that could attack the united states um and and certainly that raises the question well uh, was the premature end of operation high jump and the, and the casualties and the lost planes uh, was that a, a result of some battle um, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about that, but it was only, uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 that KGB files were released, which showed that Stalin had uh, gotten intelligence about uh, Operation High Jump. And what the Soviet intelligence files indicated was that, um, the, uh, Bird's fleet or task force was attacked by flying sources uh, that uh, these flying sources basically shot down aircraft uh, destroyed uh, some of the the ships and and forced uh, the operation high jump to come to a premature end and for uh, bird's naval task force to turn around um, so that, so that was pretty important uh, confirmation. Uh, that uh, indeed there there was a battle down there in Antarctica, and that um, op, op, that uh, flying sources were involved, and that these flying sources were in some way connected to the Germans uh, that Operation High Jump was l- really looking for.
1: How was he able to give that interview to the El Mercurio newspaper? Didn't that compromise the mission somewhat or national security by? explaining some of the things that he saw or speculated?
0: Well, I, I think this is this is an interesting question because it really raises, well, you know, what was Byrd's motivations? I, I think Byrd probably understood that when he went to Washington that he, he was going to be muzzled because he, he had all this information about the Germans uh, down there with these advanced flying saucers with laser cannons that could defeat anything that the U.S. Navy right. had at the time that – um and, and so he realized that he he was likely to be muzzled and so he probably took that opportunity to kinda of like be uh frank and a little more forthcoming in that in, in that interview to kinda of like give some details without being too specific about who the enemy was. He was just vague that yes, there's a new enemy that can attack us from both poles, um, and that uh yeah, you know, they, they possess some um, advanced technologies and just kind of kept them very general because, you know, what happened afterwards was that, yes, he did go to Washington, D.C., and and he was indeed muzzled.
1: Because I'm thinking, all that amount of force, and we were exhausted after 1945, I think, 1946, 47, when, when high jump happened, you would think, why would you we use such a, a massive force To go on an expedition with that scientist, something else is up here. And then as I'm reading your book, More Eureka Moments, I'm thinking of the 1952 UFO flyovers above Washington, D.C. Was that a show of force basically saying, hey, we can penetrate your airspace, there's nothing you can do about it. And then immediately after, I think it was, the Holloman Air Force Base visit or agreement with Eisenhower... And everybody thinks, oh, it was an extraterrestrial group that came of Nordics. Could it be that it was some of these Germans that came and, and had an agreement saying, leave us alone? And shortly after, we have the UN-Antarctic Treaty. Can you dissect what I just said?
0: Uh, sure. There's a there's a kind of history here that is very important to emphasise because it was in March, actually March 12 of 1947 that uh, uh, that Admiral Byrd gave his interview uh, in Chile, talking about this new enemy that could overfly uh, U.S. territory. Because only three months after that. Um, less than three months after that, in, in June of 1947, was when you had uh, the Kenneth Arnold sightings, where he saw these flying wing aircraft right. that were uh, that were very similar to the Horton flying wings. That were these were German prototype uh, flying. Wing jets that the Horton brothers had uh, developed prototypes of in Germany, but the successful prototypes were developed in Antarctica. And so these were part of this new generation of, of German secret spacecraft that could overfly U.S. territory. And so throughout the 19th, uh, end of the latter part of the 1940s and right into the 1950s, I think we have to consider that – some, if not many, of the UFO sightings that people witnessed and Air Force uh, jets tr- uh, tracked or pilots uh, witnessed, uh, that some of these were, in fact, a German spacecraft or German um, anti-gravity vehicles uh, that uh, the U.S. fighter planes couldn't, intercept. They they couldn't match them in terms of performance and speed. So then we get to nineteen fifty two in what in what really was a very brazen incident, you have the Washington flyover where you have fleets of these uh, UFOs of these flying saucer craft that f- flew over th- Washington, D.C. on successive weekends, um, at least two if not three weekends in July of, of the uh, 1952. You had these flyovers, and according to uh, different insiders that I've um, either interviewed or, you have know, gone through their testimony. Um, these are, of course, I've mentioned Corey Good. Another one is William Tompkins, who was a, a former, uh, Navy, uh, Navy uh, covert operative and also then later worked for Douglas Aircraft Company as, uh, as a engineer and also Clark McClelland, who was a former NASA spacecraft operator and longtime uh, employee of various NASA contractors, that all three say the same thing, uh, that the flyover in 1952, that these were German craft, that these were uh, craft that were sent to basically show the United States that at any time they could overfly not only any territory in the United States but also the, the US capital itself and this was the mechanism by which the Germans um, in Antarctica wanted to pressure Uh, the U.S. National Security Establishment into uh, negotiations. And so negotiations uh, basically under the Truman administration um, and then the Eisenhower administration, which uh, Eisenhower was elected in November of 1952, came to power January 20th of 1953. And that's when the negotiations really kicked into high gear. And And the negotiations um, under the Eisenhower administration, there were two key people that were critical in these negotiations. And both of them, uh, the Dulles brothers, Alan Dulles, who was the uh, Director of Central Intelligence, and John Foster Dulles, who was the Secretary of of State, both of them had long-time relationships with the German uh, industrialists, with the German secret societies. And in fact, both of them were instrumental in the rise of Adolf Hitler. This is one of the things that... Uh, people aren't really aware of. In fact, Eustace Mullins, who wrote the uh, book about uh, the, the Committee of um, 300, right. uh, he actually says that uh, that the Dulles brothers actually were pivotal in um, and and met with and were involved in the industrialist meeting that actually led to Hitler being appointed chancellor, and that they actually played a role in con- convincing. Uh, the president of Germany, Paul von Hindenburg, into appointing Hitler Chancellor of Germany in um, early 1933. Um, And certainly the historic records support that because we know uh, that both Dulles brothers in the middle of 1933 actually went to Berlin and met with Adolf Hitler. So here you have... Uh, the two key people, two key people leading the negotiations with the Germans, who have had this long time relationship with German secret societies and with German industrialists and with the Third Reich, leading the negotiations, so that by 1954-55 uh, uh, agreements were finally reached, and that's when uh, uh you have uh, President Eisenhower traveling to Holloman Air Force Base to basically. Um, I put put the uh, ink on the paper or to kind of like uh, do the friendly handshake, however it was that the Eisenhower administration reached this agreement with the uh, the German program out of Antarctica but Holloman Air Force Base I believe was was the critical event in terms of this secret agreement being reached with the German breakaway group in Antarctica and, uh, and soon after that, that's when you have uh, Operation Paperclip where all of these uh, German scientists were being brought in to the United States to help the, uh, the U.S. military industrial complex understand all of these advanced technologies uh, that they had uh, gotten from the Germans um, or had recovered from these um, extraterrestrial uh, UFO crashes, that these German scientists were going to be kind of like the liaison or, or help the U.S. military industrial complex understand these and reverse engineer them.
1: So, you think the agreement that took place at Holloman Air Force Base was actually made with terrestrials, in other words, these members of these uh, or this breakaway civilization and not extraterrestrials and the reason why we keep hearing third parties talk about oh, it was e t or you know the craft that the Air Force chases and can never do anything with it the Milton Torres story and so on. this could actually be. The Germans, but we cannot. Uh, imagine if you're a general in the in the military, you cannot say that's actually the Germans who developed this technology. It's better to say extraterrestrial, because otherwise we think there's another power on this planet that is that we cannot beat.
0: Right. Well, both both the United States and the USSR and Britain and other major power powers they, they they had their reasons for why they didn't want the truth to come out. Now, I'm not saying Mel that all flying saucer landings uh, involved uh, Germans. I mean, some of them certainly were extraterrestrials because the extraterrestrials were helping the Germans um, in Antarctica. You had uh, different groups of extraterrestrials helping the Germans down there develop their technologies, um, but. Some Certainly, um, in terms of what happened at the Holloman Air Force Base, um, this was part of a kind of like German extraterrestrial alliance. And uh, and certainly, um, according to Clark McClelland, um, who consulted German scientists at NASA, he said that uh, these German scientists uh, basically confided to him that, yes, it was Germans that actually – uh, were part of the delegation that was at Holloman Air Force Base. Um, and, and this is also consistent with what, um, William Tompkins and Corey Good has, has said. And another person that I haven't mentioned so far is Vladimir Tuzinski. And, and, and a lot of the information that Vladimir Tuzinski came out with in, um, 1991. Where he basically began talking about Antarctica and the German space program in Antarctica. And he based all of that information on these, uh, Nazi SS files that he said, uh, the, the, uh, Warsaw Pact had, uh, gained. Uh, after the Second World War, and that were in the different intelligence communities of the Warsaw Pact. And and because Vladimir Terzinski was a member of the Bulgarian Academy of Sciences, he got his hands on these uh, – uh, Nazi SS files and, and basically he was the first to say many of the things that we've been talking about that the Germans had established a, a breakaway group down in Antarctica, that the Germans had defeated Operation Paperclip using flying saucers, that the Germans had reached agreements with the US military industrial complex. That Tosinski was the first to say all this. Now, at the time, um, you know, people just kind of like took it all as just Disinformation, or just they said, "Well, where's the evidence?" And and because he uh, he did a a bunch of uh, lectures and um, he showed some of the files, but um, still, it was it was never really something that people took seriously. But with this new wave of insiders such such as uh, Clark McClellan, uh, William Tompkins, Corey Good coming forward, I think what we have now is another level of information, another wave of information confirming just about everything Brzezinski said. So, you know, I'm certainly not the first to say these things, nor is uh, Bill Tompkins, Corey Goode, or McClelland. Um, I mean, I really have to credit uh, Tzinsky for, for being so far out ahead. I mean, he was saying all this stuff like 27 years ago, and, and no one really paid attention to him other than, other than the select few that uh, went along to his lectures. But but I think at the end of the day, we're going to say that, well, wow, you know, this has really been an effort by multiple people and multiple researchers to get the truth out.
1: You say that ETs were helping the Germans. Was they this during and after the war? And if so, why did they choose the Germans and say not the Americans or the Soviets? <laughs>
0: Well, the way it began, uh, Mel, was that uh, first there was a human-looking group of extraterrestrials. And you know, and I just used the term Nordics just because that's very handy right. for describing a number of different human-looking groups. And so these uh, Nordics began helping um, the, the Thule Society and the Vril Society in Orsic develop their space-time devices in the 1920s. So this was well before Hitler came on the scene. And in the 1920s, um, Germany really was very much an open democratic society, and there were there was great hopes that the um, that the Germans who were working with the Nordics would actually help disseminate this information into the public arena, so that you could actually have a civilian space program being developed. And I think that was the goal, because the Germans and the Nordics uh, really believed in raising consciousness and like spirituality, that these were things that um, they shared. Uh, But then in 1933, uh, because Hitler came into power and wanted to kind of like um, subsume all of this into uh, a, a new armaments program that the Third Reich was heading, um, mm-hmm. then the, the Nordic influence began to wane, and by the beginning of the Second World War, then another group of extraterrestrials came on the scene. Uh, these were the, the reptilians, and these this was a group that were kind of like um, very much in the same mindset. As, uh, Hitler's Third Reich, which was, uh, having a kind of imperial mindset, you know, using force to solve problems and establishing empires and basically establishing domination. Um, and that the Nordics, um, began to help the Allied powers, uh, during the Second World War. And this is what, um, William Tompkins says. And his, his testimony is very important because he actually describes How the Nordics, um, as the Second World War progressed and as the Nordics realized that the Third Reich, uh, had basically been compromised by the reptilians, that the Nordics were now helping the US and Britain, um, and even the Soviet Union in, in dealing with the threat posed by the German reptilian alliance. So it, it really is, um, much more complicated. And, um, as the Second World War ended and and the Germans established their bases in Antarctica and South America They continued to work with the reptilians. But the Nordics were now working uh, with different branches of the U.S. military and with the U.S. Navy in particular.
1: Before we take the break, I have one thing that I want to discuss, another topic. The Antarctic Treaty, the original signatories, to the treaty are the twelve countries that were active in Antarctica during the International Geophysical Year of 5758. Since 1959, 41 other countries have joined. What do you really think this treaty is about? And based on what Admiral Byrd said regarding oil, minerals, and vast resources, you would think that by now, Michael, you would have the exons of the world in that part of the world and the entire area will be commercialized and exploited, knowing those humans, right? But that hasn't happened. What is really behind this treaty, in your opinion?
0: Well, I think the uh, Antarctica Treaty uh, was really designed to allow, uh, provide a cover for the U.S. military industrial complex to be able to establish permanent bases in Antarctica, and that um, through that cover, they could then send uh, various or could start various covert operations in Antarctica um, in support of the German program down there. Um, and that uh, the Antarctic Treaty uh, provided a means to kind of like ensure that no other nation that went into Antarctica could uh, use it for any military purposes because, you know, from the perspective of the Germans who had established um, a colony in Antarctica deep under the ice um, and who by 1935 had reached agreements with the U.S., they didn't want other countries, you know, the USSR, uh, France, China, India, all of these other countries kind of like coming in there and and, and in one, at some point, becoming a future threat. So they decided that um, any country that was wanting to establish bases in Antarctica had signed the Antarctic Treaty, which committed them to, to uh, peaceful scientific exploration in Antarctica. But the thing was that Um, In the German programs under the Antarctic ice, it was anything but peaceful and scientific. It was really aimed at developing new generations of spacecraft that could be used for uh, colonial conquest um, in space and for interstellar interstellar trips um, for imperial purposes. Uh, So they were developing advanced weapon systems down there in Antarctica, and this is where it gets very disturbing, uh, is that um, they were using captured humans uh, not only as a slave labor force, but also as a captive force or a captive uh, population that could object to human experimentation to test all kinds of new generations of dr- drugs and toxins and meteorological warfare um, and mind control. So, you know, what you have in Antarctica uh, on the surface, you uh, have these scientific programs that are run by the 55 border, uh, nations that are now signatories to the An- Antarctic uh, Treaty. But underneath Antarctica, you, you have this... Really a dangerous set of programs uh, that are militaristic and are highly abusive of a slave labor population and of human subjects.
1: And I apologize, folks, because we're losing a little bit of the signal. But I hope that you understood everything that Dr. Salas said. This is just fascinating. And when we come back. I want to discuss more of what Corey Goode has been saying. We've been just, I wanted to give a chronology of events of what has been happening, and especially this treaty. Do you have your opinion? Other people have their opinion. I think, in my humble opinion, the fact that so many countries have joined in that treaty and nobody, nobody can penetrate that ice, I think that there's a force, a breakaway civilization or perhaps even the Germans who are there occupying that area, saying to all these countries, you better have a signature here on this treaty, or you're going to become our enemy, and you don't want to face us. And this is why we haven't seen any commercializing of that area. But that is just my opinion. When we come back, I want you to discuss more, more of what's happening today. Some of the things that people like Buzz Aldrin have been saying he said, this is pure evil, which is something that he tweeted. You know what I'm talking about, right? Michael, you're there? Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, uh, I was bus mentioning uh, Buzz Aldrin. He mentioned what we saw as pure evil. Some of the highest-ranking religious personnel from around the world, the, 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 the Russia uh, and others have been visiting that area. What is it that is hidden there? And will we ever find out? what's under that ice. Michael, how can people buy the new book, Hidden, uh, Antarctica's Hidden History?
0: Um, people can uh, go to Amazon and, uh, and they can find it there, uh, Antarctica's Hidden History, Corporate Foundations of Secret Space Programs. Um, or they can go to my website, uh, exipolitics.org, and uh, they'll find the uh, new book there. You can order it uh, from either the website or Amazon.
1: Excellent, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm going to try to hang up and call Dr. Salah back to get a better connection. But fascinating talk. When we come back, we're going to dig deeper. And by the way, before I end this segment, I'd like to share a personal story with you. If you interact with me on Facebook, you know I like music, all sorts of music. I have a lot of instruments that I like to play. I'm not a musician, but I like to experiment making music. And with today's equipment, I'm able to play all instruments and create songs. At any rate, with the difficulty we have in including other people's music in our shows because of copyrights, I've decided that I'd like to compose my own music, which right now that's what you hear most of the time, on intros, outros, and intermissions. But for the last 40 plus years, I've had this melody in my mind, and lately I just decided to create songs based on that melody. Some of the versions are very ethereal, some are more hard rock, but... You be the judge. i like to share it with all of you. I'll even create longer versions of space music or meditation music and even guided meditations in the future. And most importantly, I've composed the music and I've tuned all the instruments in A432 hertz. Tonight, we'll start with a more ethereal song and we'll progress from there. When you listen to tonight's song, unless you're driving, I want you to close your eyes and imagine you're in a place similar to the jungles of Avatar, or your favorite place. Let the music and your imagination take you where you want to be. I hope you enjoyed Write to me if you did or you didn't. Now, a quick message and the music will follow. This is Mel Fabregas and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.